It's fair to say federal agencies will never buy commercial cloud computing services from Chinese vendors, but China aims to take the lead in cloud computing worldwide. Some experts warn that could pose yet another competitive challenge to the United States. Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to one of them. Jim Lewis is senior vice president for the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It looks like you've migrated from writing cybersecurity suggested policy for the White House to looking at cloud computing, which kind of is related, I guess. Tell us your thoughts about cloud. Cloud is definitely part of the larger network security picture. And we had Rob Joyce speaking uh, a week or so ago where he said cloud is the future of computing. So if you look at the national strategy, an emphasis on cloud security and emphasis on the move to the cloud is a big part of it. So I don't see a difference between cloud and cybersecurity. One is the same as the other. All right. And so, again, U.S. companies only buy from U.S. vendors, and there is generally a requirement for U.S. soil-located cloud services. But that doesn't really address the issue of widespread Chinese adoption by commercial entities here in the United States and the establishment of that Chinese infrastructure worldwide to go along with Amazon, Google, and the rest of them. Fair to say? Two things are going on. The first is that if you talk to Chinese vendors, including Huawei, they'll tell you that they expect to regain global dominance, and they think that cloud and 6G are their path forward. So cloud plays a big part in China's plans for dominating global networks. The second part is, is it is a global network. So American vendors, American companies operating in America don't face the risk of using Chinese technology. And let's be clear, there's a there's a definite risk of espionage. It's more than a risk, it's a certainty. But they're going to have to connect to countries elsewhere, and they're going to have to connect to networks in other places. And that's where the risk comes in is China pretty much dominates Africa now. Um, they're making big strides in Latin America, and the cloud market is part of that. So this is a continuation of the contest we saw over 5G a few years ago and the centrality of Huawei in supplying other people. It creates risk for the United States. It's fair to say then that in those countries that are still developing, in the same way that they skipped the wired POTS type of telephone systems, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, going directly to wireless cellular, in the same way they're skipping the data center model and going straight to cloud? You know, um, Cloud is going to be increasingly important for so many services. 5G networks depend on cloud. Artificial intelligence robotics depend on cloud. Logistics will increasingly rely on cloud. Now, what flavor of cloud is, of course, one of the competitive features? Is it is it uh, an American company? Is it in-house? Is it on-prem? What We are seeing a shift, a migration in how people use computing technology to the cloud. And that makes it a strategic issue for the United States. You know, if you are comfortable with having China dominate the global information infrastructure, okay, but I, I, I don't think most people are. Sure. There's an old saying about roads. You know, how many roads are in the United States? And the answer is one, because you can drive on any road from any other road, just if you traverse the right turns. Same thing is true of networks, really. In some sense, there is only one network worldwide, increasingly more integrated. Does that mean that enclaves of U.S. only or protected types of cloud areas really are safe? Yeah, they're probably, you know, a, a protected cloud in the United States probably is safe, right? 
But the question is, no country is an island. And so if you want to do international business, you're going to go onto foreign networks. You're going to have to access or provide access to foreign clouds. And that creates the opportunity for mischief. So if you want to extend your statement, there really is only one network and it's global. And we're having a dispute now over whose technology, whose standards, whose norms will dominate that global network, ours or China's. We're speaking with Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President for the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And if you're, say, a vendor that has international sales and also sales to the federal government under some of the supply chain security initiatives, software supply chain security initiatives, that would seem to be a problem if, say, on your commercial side, you're totally fine with using a Chinese technology-based or even a China-based cloud provider. But then, you know, CMMC program, for example, that's going to mitigate against your ability to serve the federal government, I would think. You know, to their credit, the previous administration had uh, a clean network initiative that included clean cloud. And that was a recognition of the, the interconnections between American companies, foreign companies, and the problems that having a big Chinese presence in the cloud could create. So this isn't new. This is probably five or six years old that people have been thinking about it. Right now, the U.S. has a huge market share lead in many regions, not all, but many. And the Chinese hope to displace that. Some of their motive is commercial, clearly, but some of it is also a security motive. If you control the, the cloud, you have more influence, you have greater access to information. It just creates more risk. And so that's what the previous administration was trying to address. This administration is continuing with that. One dilemma we have, and you've seen this in other places as well, is China's willing to subsidize. China's willing to engage in predatory trade practices. So I've had foreign officials tell me, you know, the Chinese will show up they will underbid Western companies by a significant margin, 20%, 30%. And that's hard to turn down. So there's an intention to make the world wired by China. And that's what we're having to push back against. Is one of the questions then whether Amazon, Google, Oracle, all of these companies that are cloud commercial providers invest in their own infrastructure using Chinese gear? You know, so far, the use of Chinese equipment in the cloud isn't a, a big problem uh, because, for one thing, all the big leading U.S. cloud providers know the risks, and so they're going to seek to avoid that. That's been true for years. So the issue is not so much American cloud service providers, but more the people on the other end, you know, the companies in Latin America, the companies in Southeast Asia, uh, the companies in the Middle East. That's where Chinese tech providers have a lead, clear lead, over Western companies. And that's where the risk is. So what, what is the specific risk then if the commercial usage is Chinese-based over there in Asia, for example, in Africa, and say in the European Union and the United States, North America? It's not. And I don't know what South America is doing. What is the actual risk then to the United States? Risk is first espionage because you've got American companies accessing foreign networks that are based on Chinese technology that could be compromised. The second risk is influence. If it's 
the company that's building the highways for you or building the railroads, they're going to be more influential than the bystanders. The third is uh, standards, which is that if you buy Chinese cloud technology, the Chinese very often want you to buy related technology. So you end up with not just cloud, but with everything that appends to it uh, being Chinese. And the fear is they'll use it for market advantage the way they've done in other areas. So there's an economic danger here as well as a national security threat. Yeah, and one of the problems we're having in this discussion is economics and national security are blending in a way they weren't. I saw a paper recently that said that the U.S.'s central concern was national security. That's true, but the definition of national security is very different than it was 20 years ago. It includes economics. It includes technology. It includes things that don't fit under the rubric of defense. So we're being challenged in ways we're not accustomed to. Right. I think it was President Obama that pointed out somewhat wryly that, yes, it's the economy that pays for everything else, including defense. And that's where we are struggling, because the foundation of national security is the economy and economic strength and the ability to create new technologies, the ability to afford new technologies. And we've seen countries fall behind when they've made the wrong investment decisions. That will affect spectrum allocation. That will affect global standards. That will affect the purchase of cloud services. We, you know, people, everyone knows about TikTok. And so we can we can skip another TikTok commercial, but TikTok is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Chinese software being used in American products. Um, we have uh, interconnected economies. The Chinese have the same problem. I guess that's a comfort. Our economies are interconnected. We've spent 40 years building closer and closer connections. And so when you lift the hood up, um, a lot of IT has some piece of China in it. And sure. That raises concerns. So what should the United States do? Is there any policy recommendation that can strengthen the cloud position here? A lot of this comes back to rebuilding capacities we had uh, in the Cold War. And that doesn't mean doing exactly what we did in the Cold War. But um, when you look at foreign assistance, one reason people in other countries buy Chinese technology is that it's a lower price. It's subsidized. It comes with a lot of benefits, education, workforce, capital, uh, infrastructure, and we have to compete, but we have so many rules in place when it comes to foreign assistance that very often it's difficult for us to compete with the Chinese. The Chinese don't come in and ask questions about social issues or political issues. The Chinese don't care about bribery, not to say maybe that we shouldn't care about bribery, but we're going to have to. We're used to a world where we were dominant and we didn't really have to compete. And so we could afford to impose rules that were peripheral to the larger question of security and economic growth. And we have to reconsider that. Yeah, I think one recent, maybe it was an African official who was quoted as saying, with the Chinese, we get an airport. With the Americans, we get a lecture. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that wraps it up, folks. I've talked to African officials, and you know what I told them basically is, look, your key concern, and this is true for most of the developing world, your key concern is economic growth. And so from a national interest perspective, you have to put that as a higher priority than American security. That sounds terrible, but coming in and telling people do something because it's good for the United States, strangely enough, doesn't have as much selling power as someone showing up and saying, I'm going to give you an airport. And I'm not going to look the other way if some of the money for that airport gets diverted to Switzerland. 
So we, um, we have not yet fully recognized that we're in a contest. Cloud is part of that. The Chinese will get better. They'll get a bigger market share, and that's not in our interest to see that happen. Jim Lewis is Senior Vice President for the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to his cloud analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. 
So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And... You know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving 
with the correct conclusion. He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.